We serve a great God. And the greatness that um, is the heart of the gospel is that God loves us with an unconditional love. And it doesn't matter who we are or where we've been or what we've done, that if our hearts are open to him, he will speak to us and grant us forgiveness and cleansing, comfort and restoration. I was thinking about it this morning and all the difficulties that we face and the struggles, the addictions, the things that bind us that we struggle with, all of that started in the book of Genesis at the beginning. And what happened was that people were given a choice to believe the truth or to believe a lie. And they began by turning their back upon God and his word and they chose deliberately, knowingly, knowing the consequences of what was coming, they chose to believe the lie. And it affected everything. It affected their understanding of who God was. It affected their relationship with him. It affected their relationship immediately with one another, the husband and the wife, broken up the home. Immediately it had an effect upon their whole um, relationship with nature itself. The earth was cursed. They were cast out of the garden. And all of these things came because they chose to believe a lie. Now we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ today. And even on that day, people were, were presented with a choice. So in the book of Matthew chapter 28, it talks about the resurrection on the first day of the week, early in the morning. Some of the faithful women, all the men were hiding. Some of the faithful women, uh, early in the morning while it was still dark, out of their love and devotion to Christ, who they had watched die, they knew where the tomb was. They went early in the morning to try to minister um, to the dead body, preparing it properly for burial because sundown on Friday, that's the beginning of the Sabbath. And it was a Passover Sabbath, so it was an extra special one. So they very hastily put him in the tomb with what they had, um, anxiously waiting through the darkness and the long days of Saturday until early Sunday morning they're there. They have no clue because this is a big tomb and it's got a huge stone that's rolled into the entrance. It's a, 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 a cylinder, it's flat, and it's heavy. And the way they did that was um, the, t the tomb was a cave and they would be a trench dug at the bottom. And once the body was inside, you rolled this heavy stone and it went down that trench, thunk in front of them and it's heavy massive thing they had no clue how they were going to get in there but they just went because of their love for the Lord was drawing them and when they got there they found the tomb was open and it was empty nobody home so in their confusion in their fear and immediately they jumped to the conclusion that somebody had come and stolen the body to desecrate it we don't understand that here. Uh, Joanna and I lived in Africa for a while, and um, there was a black market on body parts. And so it got to where people were trying to get permission to bury their relatives in their yard um, because oftentimes there would be a burial. They would come back the next day to bring flowers and things, and the, the uh, grave had been dug up, and the body desecrated for the body parts 
for the, the magic things that they did. So they were concerned, Mary and Martha and the other ladies were concerned that somebody had stolen the body away. And so she ran back to tell the other disciples. I'm reading from Matthew 28. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. Now you may wonder why they had guards at a tomb. It was because in chapter 27 of Matthew, after Jesus had been crucified, the chief priests were still afraid of him. They watched him die a brutal, uh, public, humiliating death. And they were still afraid of him. So they went to Pilate and begged permission to seal up the tomb because he said that deceiver, speaking of Jesus, said that the third day he would rise again and we're afraid somebody may take the body and then they'll tell everybody that he rose from the dead. So Pilate says, here's a guard. You take it and make it as secure as you know how. So they put the Roman seal on, posted an armed guard at the tomb of a dead man because they were afraid of him. Rightly so. Earlier, that's resurrection morning, there had been a tremendous earthquake because there had been a, one earlier on Friday when Jesus died because all of creation had been corrupted and affected by the fall because people chose to believe a lie. And the consequences of that went far beyond anything that they could imagine. Even the earth itself was affected, corrupted by their sin and we've been corrupting it ever since. When Jesus died, creation understood the significance of what was happening. And the earth trembled and the rocks split and the graves opened and people long dead came out, tells us in chapter 27 of Matthew. And after the resurrection, they went into the city and spoke to people. So when Jesus died on the cross, the earth responded. The sun grew dark. The earth shook and trembled. The guards said, this must be God's son. The dead rose. Then on Sunday morning, there was another big earthquake, and it rolled the stone away. It says an angel came and sat, and the, the guards became as dead men, armed men, and they're on their face, and they can't move because of the glory, the power of the risen Christ. So the women come. They're not troubled by the guards. They're on the ground. So they run back to get the disciples. Meantime, these guards are able to, to get a little bit of control of themselves and they get up and run and tell the high priest. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised the plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money, did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So sin began with a lie in the Garden of Eden. And now on the very resurrection day, uh, they're presented with another lie. Notice what these chief priests who, are, who said Jesus was the deceiver, they are intentionally, deliberately paying a bribe to deceive people. And that's what lies always do. Notice what they did not say. They never, never questioned the empty tomb. 
They never questioned that the tomb was empty. They couldn't. The very guards they sent to guard him were the first human witnesses to the resurrection. He's not there. So even his enemies were proclaiming the power of the risen Lord. So the lie was that the disciples had come and stolen the body. Well, the disciples were just as surprised as the chief priest, maybe more so. They were confused. They were fearful. They were doubtful. They had no clue what that empty tomb meant, even though Jesus had told them repeatedly beforehand that it was coming. It just went right over their head, just like us. And so we had the same opportunity as those early Christians did. We can choose to believe the truth of the empty tomb or we can choose to believe the lie that it makes no difference. So they came and some of the disciples uh, heard the, the news. Luke says these women came back saying that the tomb was empty, that Jesus was not there. And they said it seemed to them like nonsense idle tales wouldn't believe these women uh, you're delusioned it's your imagination so they said oh, well go see for yourself so Peter and John did um, again these are men that are hiding for their life because people associated with Jesus are going to die and they don't want that they saw what happened but they ran anyway and they ran to the tomb and they looked in and they saw sure enough um, tombs empty they still don't understand what it means and they go home and everybody left except for Mary we're in chapter 20 of the gospel of John then the disciples went back to their homes but Mary stood outside the tomb crying uh, she doesn't know what to do she thinks somebody has stolen the body and she doesn't know what to do so all she can do is stand at the, at the foot of the tomb and weep. Her grief was real and it was genuine and it was heartfelt. While she's weeping, she bent over to look into the tomb again and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? So this morning as we come, we live in a sinful world. We live in a world where there's a lot of pain and suffering, a lot of sorrow and grief, a lot of hurt. What makes you cry this morning? What is it that's deep inside you that you don't know how to deal with and don't have the resources or the ability to deal with? What is it that makes you weep? They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they've put him. <clears throat> now, it's an interesting thing that all Jesus' life, people came looking for him. Um, right from the beginning, um, the shepherds out in their fields, the angels tell about this miraculous birth. So immediately, they leave their, their jobs, they leave their cattle, the sheep that they were watching, 
they go into town looking for this infant that was born. Uh, a while later, <clears throat> these wise men from the east come. They're also looking for Jesus to come and worship him. Shortly after that, Herod sent his soldiers. They were also looking for Jesus because they wanted to kill him. And so they killed all the infants, two years old and under, in that whole village and the surrounding area, slaughtered these little children because they're looking for Jesus to kill him. And so people are constantly looking for him. As we go through Jesus' life, we see a lot of people coming. Some are coming to be healed. Some are coming to be delivered. Some are, are coming because they are brokenhearted and have nowhere to go. Some are coming because they're caught in marriages that are loveless. And they're caught. Some are there because they're hurting and they weep in secret when no one sees. And they're coming to look to Jesus. Some are coming to accuse, to condemn, to ridicule. Some are coming just because they're curious to see what's happening. To see this man who's reputed to be able to do all these things. And so people are constantly looking. Even when he was 12 years old, um, he was there at the temple on one of the, one of the uh, major festivals of the day. They had made the long trip from Nazareth, his family. And it was like a family reunion, kind of like Easter. You know, families get together for the religious holiday and the families get together and um, it's a great time of rejoicing and, and fellowship and coming together with families and homes. And so on their way home, they thought Jesus, 12 years old, was with one of the relatives or playing with some of his friends. And a couple of days later, they found out he wasn't with them. And they, they panicked, like any parent would when your child goes missing. They panicked. And they were looking everywhere. They went all the way back to Jerusalem, and they searched the city, couldn't find him. Finally, they went to the temple, and there he was. He was sitting there, just sitting there, talking with all the religious leaders and teachers of the day. And they were amazed that this young kid had this wisdom and understanding of scripture and there was a mild rebuke there Mary comes to Jesus and says don't you know we've been looking for you everywhere we didn't know where to find you and Jesus said why were you looking didn't you know I would be in my father's house it's where I belong I'm right where I'm supposed to be well now Mary is She's coming to look. He's not there in the tomb where he's supposed to be. She doesn't know what's going on. She's looking to Jesus, trying to find him, looking for him. There's a big difference in looking to Jesus because we need something, because we can't find him, because we want something from him, and looking, looking for Jesus for those things and looking to Jesus as the answer, the solution of what we're looking for. All these people came because... He was lost or he had something they wanted, um, but they weren't looking to him. They were looking for him. She's looking for him, can't find him. So the angels are talking to her. But that's pretty awesome. You're sitting here, two angels. These guys are sitting there uh, and they're asking her, woman, why are you crying? She's not impressed by the angels because the angels don't have the solution. Why settle for second best? And she continues to weep. They've taken my Lord away. I don't know where they've put him. And she turns around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. We don't know why. Um, she's looking for Jesus. She watched him die. There's this man standing there, she's in a garden. Uh, 
and it's early in the morning. Who comes to a garden early in the morning? The gardener. The workers. That's the easiest time, best time to work in the garden. So that's why he's there. That she thinks. I don't know if the sun just coming up was behind him. Don't know. Anyway, she didn't recognize him. And it's Jesus, the one she's looking for. And he's standing right there. You know, most of us, in our need and in our desperation, we look around and we say, I wonder where God's at. I wonder where the Lord is in my time of suffering, in my time of loss, in my time of pain. Where is the Lord? He's right here. He's right here. He promised us, didn't he? I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's right there. We may not recognize him. We may not sense his presence, but he is there. So she turns around. She saw Jesus standing there, but she did not recognize him. Woman, he says, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Same question that the angels had. She, thinking he was the gardener, said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him. I will go get him. Jesus needs our help, you know. Jesus calls her by name. And with the calling of the name, she saw who he was. He's not dead, he's alive. He's nearer than you think. What is it that you're looking for? What is it you would be asking God for today? He's here. He's here to hear. So she understood and the revelation came to her. And she turns and recognizes him and calls out in Aramaic, which is her native tongue, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, you can't hold on to me. It's not just for you. You need to go back and tell the rest of my brothers that I'm alive and I'll go before you and I'll meet you in Galilee. And I'm going to go returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. They had forsaken Jesus. They had denied him. They had run. They had made commitments and broken every one of them. With good intentions, with sincere hearts, they had made promises and they broke every one out of fear, out of desperation, out of confusion because they did not understand what God was doing. But God's love, unconditional for them. Paul tells us in Romans 5, uh, you know, sometimes for a good person, somebody would dare to die on their behalf, give their life for the other person. But God's love he demonstrated in this that while we were yet sinners, while we were still enemies of God, foreigners to Him, don't even know Him and don't even want to know Him, while we were in that case, rebellious, defiant, arrogant, Jesus died for us on the cross. Unconditional love. The thief on the cross understood that. And it's a, I think it's just such a beautiful thing that all the people who were supposed to love him and know him and walk with him fled. 
None of them understood. Not one of the disciples, when Jesus was hanging on that cross, believed he was who he said he was. But this thief, as a judgment for his crimes which he's committed, is hung on a cross next to him. And that thief looks over at Jesus and he says, Lord, when you come to your kingdom, remember me. This man understood who Jesus was. And even in that last hour, God did not leave himself without a witness. And this thief said, Lord, remember me. Jesus said, today. And it's, getting that, it's in the middle of the afternoon now. Today. Sunrise, sun, the, the beginning of the day for the Jews starts at sundown. They're, they're due, they have a lunar calendar. So they reckon the, the hours of the day from sundown to sundown. That's their, that's their way of reckoning time. So it's, it's a little after 3 o'clock in the afternoon when Jesus is telling this guy. Uh, so the sun sets, what, between 6 and 7 at that time over there. Today, he says, you will be with me in paradise. God's witness in the life of this dying thief. So Mary is surprised. She's surprised to see that Jesus is alive. Every one of the disciples, every one of them was surprised that Jesus was who he claimed to be. They had walked with him for three years. They had seen him raise the dead, walk on water, uh, cleanse lepers. They had seen all of that and participated in some of it. And yet, resurrection came as a total surprise to them. None of them expected it. None of them were looking for it. And when they were told about it, none of them believed it at first. They're kind of like us. But nevertheless, because God's love is not dependent upon us, he rose. And Jesus had told them earlier in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay it down my life of my own accord. No one takes it from me. I lay it down only to take it up again. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. And it didn't make any difference whether he was dead or not because God is the one who speaks existence into existence with a spoken word. He creates the universe. One word spoken by God creates life out of nothing. One word spoken by God can bring death um, to heal and break its power forever. Now the, the thing about the, the resurrection, what that really means for us and the reason that we call it good news and why we're so excited is this. Jesus claimed authority to forgive sin. Now these are good Jews. They all understood the clear teaching of Scripture in the Old Testament. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. If you want to be forgiven, your sin will cost a life. Someone will die for your sin and mine. So is there any such thing as a little sin? It's only a little lie. It's, it's only a little thing. Who's it hurting? It'll cost you your soul unless someone dies. By right, it should be you. And you are under a just sentence of death from God. 
And Jesus comes and takes our place. Now him rising from the dead lets us know that what he claimed to do to be able to forgive sins, he paid for with his life. He shed his blood for you and for me. Now we can believe the truth of what Jesus has done or we can believe the lie. No, it's just up to us. And, you know, people talk a lot about John 3.16. Everybody knows it. God loved the world in such a way that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. At the same time, there is condemnation. And here's what the condemnation is. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. When he talks about belief here, that's a verb. It's an action verb. It's not a statement of belief. I believe in a concept or an idea. That's not what he's talking about. James, uh, the Lord's brother, wrote a little letter toward the end of the New Testament. And he says, you believe in one God, big deal. Even the demons in hell believe that. But it doesn't do them any good. The belief that he's talking about is an action. You accept and you begin to live out that salvation that's given to you through Christ. The same chapter, John chapter 3, we read John 3.15 and 16 about God loving the world. Nobody goes on to read chapter 30, uh, verse 36 of that same chapter. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So you get to choose. You can believe the lie and walk under the wrath of God. And look what happens in your life. You can accept what Christ has done, what God has done on our behalf for us in sending His Son to die for us. And we can walk without condemnation, without fear, without guilt, without regret. It's the blood of Christ that makes the difference. It's the only thing that makes the difference. Paul understood it very, very well. In 1 Corinthians 15, 17, he says, If Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins, and you will pay. And the good news is, the tomb is empty. Christ has risen from the dead, and he's come to bring forgiveness and cleansing and wholeness to us. Now, as we've prayed... We understand that just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that everything is rosy. We still live in a sinful world. We still receive the results and the effects of sin all around us. Other people sin. Sometimes we are victims of other people's sin. Jesus understood that. He was a victim, wasn't he? You can't crucify yourself. You can hang yourself, shoot yourself, stab yourself, drink yourself to death, take an overdose of drug, but you cannot crucify yourself. He was a victim. 
He understands what it means to receive the results of someone else's sin. That's why he came. He took yours. He took mine. And he offers us, in exchange, um, his life for ours. So Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Fresh start. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us through himself, to himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself, making peace with God, not counting men's sins against them because of the death and resurrection of Christ. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, in Christ Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. He will take your sin and give you his righteousness. That's what the resurrection is all about. Let's pray. New lives for old. That's what you offer us, Lord. New lives for old. Old sins that lead to death. Old bondages. Old slavery for freedom and wholeness. We pray, Father, that you would help us as we come before you not to be leave the lie, not to be deceived anymore into thinking that we belong to ourselves and are answerable to no one. We've been bought with a price, the blood of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, as we come to you, we pray that the truth would set us free. And we know that that truth is not a a concept, it's a person. So we come to you, Lord, the giver of truth, and we ask for your mercy, your forgiveness, for our arrogance and our selfishness and our pride. And we pray that you would humble us before you, that we might enter into the fullness of life that you offer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have communion every Sunday in our church. It's good for us as a reminder to us, and we need the reminder. It's an opportunity for us to once again come before the Lord um, and confess our sins and receive cleansing and forgiveness. It's not an automatic thing. It's not a quick fix. It's nothing magical about it. Uh, Repentance means that you change. If there's no change in behavior, no change in attitude, no change in thinking, you haven't repented. You're just just sorry. (laughs) Sorry doesn't help anybody. So the Lord offers us, though, an opportunity. There are things within us that we are powerless to change. He provides that. He gives us the ability to do that. He does it for us in that sense. You still have to make the choice yourself. It's still a hard decision. 
You have to make those choices every day to walk with him. That's why Paul said he died every day. Because he knew that as he died to himself, his desires, his selfishness, and gave himself to, to the Lord, then Christ could be exalted in him and give him the guidance and direction, the wisdom that he needed, the strength when he was weak. And so he invites us to come. So our church, we believe in open communion. What that means is, in the upper room on um, that Thursday when Jesus first instituted communion, not one of those men was going to do what they had promised him to do. Not one. They're all sinners. All failures in their commitments. Every one of them. And Jesus knew that. And he loved them anyway. And so the invitation that's given this morning is an invitation that comes from Jesus Christ. And he says he will accept you as you are if you're willing to accept him and if you're willing for him to change you. Change comes from within. doesn't come from without. You don't get it by willpower. You don't get it by trying hard. You get it by receiving what he offers freely to give, what you cannot do yourself. And the world cannot give. It promises, but it never fulfills. Uh, and so it's basically an offer of life or death. You can walk in the death if you want, or you can walk in the life if you want. And so the invitation to participate comes from the Lord. As a church, we're all sinners saved by grace, every one of us. Every single one of us, sinners saved by grace. And so we invite you to come and walk with us as we seek to walk with him. When that happens, when Christ changes your heart, then you're a different person because he now lives within you and you're not by yourself anymore. And so in the emptiness, he brings fullness. In the loneliness, he brings comfort and he brings strength for what we need for each day. Again, nothing automatic or easy. Uh, life's a struggle. But he's with us now in ways that we've never before imagined. Now the disciples early struggled with that. Not one of them believed it. Later on, Luke 24 says that a couple of the disciples were walking along on the road to Damascus. They were troubled in spirit because they had also knew that Jesus had died. It was a public thing. Uh, everybody saw it. Everybody understood it. Um, they had heard rumors from the women and others that Jesus was alive. They didn't believe it. And they were walking the six kilometers or so back to Emmaus. And as they're walking along, they're troubled and they're, they're trying to get their mind wrapped around. Okay, so what does God expect of us now? We had hoped all of our dreams, all of our aspirations were based on Jesus Christ and he died. Nothing. No hope, no future. We don't know what to do. Uh, what, what are we supposed to do now? And they're trying to come to terms with that. And they see the stranger. It's Jesus. Again, they don't recognize him because they're not looking for him. They think he's dead. Even though they've been told that he's risen. That didn't phase them in one bit. And it's Jesus, and he's walking along, and he's saying, what's the problem? I said, they actually stopped. It says they were walking along. They stopped, astounded, because everybody knew. Are you a stranger here? Don't you know that what happened? He said, what? And they said, Jesus 
great prophet of God. We thought he was the one to come. He's dead. And Jesus begins to open the scripture. Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that God had promised. And he began to tell them. When they got to Emmaus, it was toward sundown, and uh, so the two disciples, they were going home. Jesus made as if he were going on his journey, continue on his journey. And they said, no, please, come stay with us. And whenever Jesus is invited to come, he always comes. If you invite him into your heart today, he will come. He's here. So he came, and he sat down with them, and he blessed the food, took bread, and he blessed the food, and he broke it. And when he broke the bread, they recognized who he was, and he disappeared. But there, there was the chair, there was the broken bread. He's alive. So this morning, we're coming into the presence of the Lord. Uh, they understood what Jesus was doing. They recognized him in the breaking of the bread because the Thursday before, on the night that he was betrayed by these very men whose feet he had washed, including Judas, who betrayed him, Jesus washed the man's feet. Jesus broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples saying, all of you eat from this bread. This is my body. It's broken for you. After supper, he took the cup, and after he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Each of you drink from this cup. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. It's shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. So when Jesus broke the bread there in Emmaus, this is my body. You watch me die, it's broken for you. You saw the shed blood. It's for you, for the forgiveness of sins, the cleansing of your heart, for the reordering of your life, something that you can't do on your own. And he invites us to come and share with him this morning. So anyone who wants to come, you are welcome. Don't feel pressured in any way. If you don't want to come, that's fine. But you are welcome here if you would like to come. Also, there will be uh, someone standing over in this corner Anybody wants prayer for anything, they will pray with you. So if you want people to pray for you, they'll do that. If you want to come take communion, go sit down, that's fine. If you want to stay where you are, that's fine. We want you to feel welcome and comfortable, but you're welcome at this table. Will those serving communion please come forward?